We continue in our series that we've entitled Exploring Ecclesiology. And uh, if you're new with us this morning, we've been using this study to understand the church. Ecclesiology is the study of the ecclesia in the Greek, literally means uh, the church. And we want to understand what the church is and uh, the purposes that the church uh, is uh, supposed to accomplish. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage of scripture. I just want to read it for us uh, quickly. It's the passage found from Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And this is what it says. His intent now was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His manifold wisdom was to be made known, was to be a manifest through the church. The idea here is that here on earth, God's agent of change, that he will declare his salvation plan, his plan of renewal for the people of God would happen not through a political party, not through uh, the family unit, not through uh, a group of people gathering together under any other name but the church. And it's so important that if we want to understand the life changing uh, ministry that the church has, then we must do studies like this, understanding what the church is, what kind of marks uh, mark out a healthy church. We need to look at the symbols that we hold to things like baptism and communion like we did last week. And today we want to go to the study of who leads the church. If this is to be the change agent of the world, then the question is who leads it? I want you to write down, before we even get into our uh, part of our outline that's uh, been printed out for you, there are three uh, differing uh, ideas on who leads the church. I want to get this out there uh, right away as I was looking through my notes even this morning. I, I, I never addressed this in what I had written out, and I thought it would be important that we address it. There are three uh, different leadership styles, if you will, or leadership structures for the church. The first one is what we call the Episcopal um, idea of leading. The Episcopal. Uh, it's, uh, of course, held by the Episcopalian church, um, but most uh, vividly, the Episcopal model of leadership is seen by the Roman Catholic Church, where you have a, a hierarchy of cardinals and bishops and priests, and uh, there are men that oversee many, many different churches. Uh, we call those bishops, and we also have what we call cardinals as well. And And they oversee it, and it's a hierarchy of leadership. And that's the Episcopal model of leadership. And hopefully you'll spell that right. I wouldn't even dare try to spell that uh, because hooked on phonics doesn't work for me. Uh, the next one is the Presbyterian model. The Presbyterian model, of course, it is uh, the model that is advocated by most Presbyterian churches in the de- denomination. And the Presbyterian model has a model where it is led by a uh, group of leaders at the local church uh, aspect of ministry. But then what happens is there's a presbytery that leads it. And so a presbytery leads a whole group of churches. And while there's a local group of leaders, of plural leaders, uh, the presbytery uh, helps oversee many of the different aspects of ministry, overseeing many different churches. 
And then the final one is the congregational um, area of leadership or idea of leadership. And the congregational idea of leadership is that a local church has its own decision-making authority and power. It's viewed as being the democratic way of leadership. The congregational movement is not very old uh, in uh, in uh, modern times. In fact, it really came uh, to understanding around the Enlightenment period when uh, this great republic of the United States of America was being formed, and the people in the churches of the United States began to say, "Hey, it works for our government in the United States." Maybe it could work within the church. Well, Village Bible Church, just so you're aware of this as we move forward, kind of as a, a uh, understanding, a framework for who we are and what we're all about, we merge in many ways, like a lot of evangelical churches, we merge the Presbyterian model with the congregational model. And what that means is we are led by a group of men called elders. These men are from our church. Uh, they serve as leaders and shepherds of the flock. And uh, we still have congregational involvement. Here at Village Bible Church, any, ver- any large major decision, uh, whether bringing on staff, whether building buildings, whether acquiring or, or selling property, uh, comes through uh, the, uh, if you will, the voting rights of the membership of Village Bible Church. And so we're going to look at this idea of elders in that conf- in those confines this morning. We want to look at who leads the church. Now, some will say, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter who leads the church? Well, if you've ever read any of uh, John Maxwell's books, one of uh, the great laws of leadership that John Maxwell has is the uh, law of the lid. The law of the lid. And the idea of the law of the lid is wherever your leadership of any structure, of any organization is, whether it's a business, whether it's a family, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a church, wherever your leadership is, you have to understand that that organization or that group of individuals will never go beyond uh, the ability of that leadership lid. One of the great stories of that that is used by John Maxwell is the story of the coach of the Chicago Bulls, Doug Collins. Doug Collins was a great coach. He was the coach that uh, put together what many believe was the framework of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen to go on those great championship runs. But the problem was many believe that uh, the Bulls at the last couple of years of Doug Collins' tenure found themselves hitting a ceiling. And so they brought in a new coach, and we know that coach's name. His name was Phil Jackson. And the reason why they brought him in was he had a lot more experience, a lot more opportunities to uh, take the team where it had never gone before. That's the idea that John Maxwell brings up of the uh, law of the lid, the leadership lid. And so we as a church, if we want to excel, if we want to be all that Village Bible Church is called to be, then it is imperative that we know who God desires to lead this church that we understand the qualifications for those who lead and that we hold them responsible and we serve them well as a congregation. And so this is a very important subject for us to look at because as the adage is said, we will only go as far as our leaders can take us. So if the elders are to lead the church, in fact, I want to read just this opening paragraph uh, just to give you a definition uh, of this idea of elder leadership. It says the New Testament gives examples of local churches being led by a plurality of godly men called elders. 
These elders functioned as members of teams rather than as individuals in directing the affairs of local congregations. Elders in the New Testament times served as the spiritual leaders of their congregation and were given the ultimate authority and responsibility to ensure that their church remained on a biblical course and that its mission was carried out. And so today, because of that job description that the New Testament gives us, we want to make sure that as elders, that we are doing the job that God has called us to, and we want to help educate you so you are aware of what we are called to as well. Now, as we look at this idea of elders, we can fall to two extremes. The first extreme is we can make the qualifications and the requirements of elder so high that nobody can touch them. We can say because this is such an important role, because it is so imperative that we have the best and only the best leaders around, then we are going to have the highest level of requirements, the highest level of testing that goes on to the point that only the perfect should apply. And that's an extreme because we need to understand that we all are sinners in in need of grace. We are all people who struggle and are flawed as a result of sin. And that's the first extreme. And there are some churches uh, that, uh, that find it, make it so difficult for anybody to serve as elder that nobody wants to serve. And so there's only a little group of men uh, that have accomplished all that has been asked of them and they're serving. That's the first extreme. Uh, the second extreme is that uh, there's no qualifications at all. Uh, some churches then swing the pendulum the other way and say, you know what, if you're willing to serve, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you've got character or not. It doesn't matter whether you're competent in uh, the ways of God's word. Uh, it really doesn't matter. And so we've got these two extremes. The churches can go at one extreme saying only the perfect should apply. And the next extreme is that it doesn't matter at all. I think there's a balance. The scriptures make it clear that God uses all kinds of people. Uh, When a nominating committee was put together to search for a new elder, uh, a list of names had come up uh, that I think are kind of funny. And they give a reason why they're unable to serve as an elder. The first man that was brought up before the nominating committee was named Noah. He had been preaching for 120 years but was turned down because he had no converts. Another man, elder, potential elder Moses came up, but the staff looked at him and said he stutters too much, and his former congregation says he loses his temper over trivial matters. Then there was Abraham, this potential elder, but during the difficult times in his life, he always took off to Egypt, and we heard that he got in trouble with the authorities and then tried to lie his way out of it. He even used his wife as a part of the scheme. David, he was an unacceptable moral character. He can't serve. He may have been considered for the ministry of music had he not fallen to sin. Solomon was brought up. Solomon was a man who had a reputation of great and godly wisdom, but he failed to practice what he preached. Then Elijah came up. He proved to be too inconsistent and was known to fold under pressure. Hosea was a man whose life, his family life was in shambles. He had been divorced and remarried. And of all people to remarry, he remarried a prostitute. Then there was Jeremiah. He was far too emotional. He was an alarmist. Some say he was a real pain in the neck. 
John then was brought up. Oh, brother John. They say he had a good Baptist background, but he lacks tact and dresses uh, like a hippie. Uh, Who would feel comfortable around a hippie at a church potluck supper with that kind of elder? Then there was a potential elder Peter. He had a bad temper and was heard to have even denied Christ publicly. How could he serve? Then there was Timothy. Oh, Timothy. He had potential, but he was far too young for the position. But then there was Paul. We found him to lack all kinds of tact. He was too harsh. His appearance was contemptible, and he preached for far too long. No one should laugh at that. (laughs) Remember, Paul preached so long that a guy fell out of a window and died. And Paul had to raise him from the dead. You better expect me not to do that for you if you fall asleep during one of my messages. But then they found their guy. His name was Judas. He seemed to be very practical, cooperative. He was good with money. He cared for the poor. And boy, did he dress well. We all agreed as a nominee committee that he was just the man to look to fill our role for elder. You see, when we start saying that God only uses the perfect... We pick the wrong person. You know, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that Israel was looking for a king. And one of the things they were looking for was what everybody else looked for for a king. A regal look. One who spoke with great authority. The idea was is looking all on the outside. And Samuel looks for that kind of king and he finds one. King Saul, it says he was good looking. And it said that he was taller, a head taller than any other Israelite. And so they pick him. And it's not God's man for the job. And then after that debacle of Saul's uh, kingship, uh, then we look for another king. And the next time we look for a king, Samuel finds himself again going to uh, a family and looking for a king. But God says this time, don't look at the external things that man looks at. Look at the heart. And David is found to be a man after God's own heart. And we need to make sure that while men need to be qualified... That we don't look for perfect men. Because if that's the case, then my time here is done. I have a, I have a great desire to serve as an elder. I believe all the men that serve on our elder team have a desire to do that. But we would all tell you and our wives would be even more honest with you that we are far from perfect. And so we need to understand this idea of elders. We need to understand who our elders are, what are their roles, what are their requirements, and then what is the relationship between the elders and the church. And so to be able to do that, we need to look uh, at the scriptures this morning. So that you would stand as we look to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to have you turn a page, just so a couple pages, I guess, to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read a lot of repeating, but a couple other things that we need to know and understand about this role of elder. Here is what Paul says to a young uh, pastor named Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, He desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of uh, but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Verse 5 says parenthetically, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he care for one for God's church he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil 
He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. Turn for a moment to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, you'll go through the book of 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy to your right, and then to the uh, book of Titus. And this is what Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 say. The reason I left you in Crete, this is Paul speaking to Titus, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for your job description for your leaders for those who have been entrusted with the work of equipping the saints for the works of service. Lord, we thank you for a church that believes in a biblical model of leadership. And Father, I pray as one of many elders here at the church that we uh, would be men of character, that we would be men of conviction, that we would be men who are competent in leading your church. That, Father, we would be uh, men who long to serve you. Father, we are not perfect. We're far from it. But by your grace, uh, you have allowed us to lead in this way. Father, I pray that we would be good shepherds of the sheep. Lord, I pray that through a message like this this morning, there would be men uh, whose fire would be lit, who would desire to serve as elders in the church. Lord, I pray that we would always do good in choosing those who are only qualified to serve. Lord, your word says that a man must be blameless above reproach. And Lord, for your name and your renown, we pray that that would be the case of every elder. And Lord, for that matter, every person that uh, attends Village Bible Church. And Lord, I also just pray for our congregation. I pray for those who are hearing this message, that they would be active in uh, the lives of their elders, that they would encourage them and love them and pray for them. Father, that they would exhort them, uh, Lord, that they would understand that the role of an elder is, first of all, accountable to you and then to the church. So, Lord, we just thank you for your word and what it's going to teach us this morning. And we look forward to all that you have to say to us in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If we want to understand uh, who is to lead the church, and once we've understood that this idea of eldership is the biblical model, then we need to look at some of the qualifications. And the first qualification I want us to look at this morning is that elders must have a consuming call from God. They must have a consuming call from God. Turn in your Bibles again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The text tells us here is a trustworthy saying in verse 1. What that means, those words there literally mean this is important stuff. Don't miss this. Paul uses this phrase six times in the New Testament. And what he's saying is, I want your attention. 
For those that think that leadership isn't an important thing, the Apostle Paul is in stark disagreement with you because he says, I'm going to talk about leaders, and this is important. Now, he had talked about important things in the first two chapters of 1 Timothy, but he gets to chapter 3 and he says, Hey, listen up. This is important stuff. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. The first qualification that we need to understand is that involves this consuming call from God is that a man must desire to serve as an elder. If there is going to uh, be any qualification, it begins with a call from God himself. And it begins by having a desire to serve as an elder. Notice what verse 1 says. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. The first place it begins is with desire. This idea of desire in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, literally in the Greek, means to reach out for something, to stretch when it speaks of it in the external ways. In an internalization of that terminology, it means to have a compulsion, an eternal drive or desire for something. And so the first thing we need to look for in our elders are those who have a drive, a desire uh, to serve, to shepherd the flock of God. Now we need to be careful because this is not the only qualification. It isn't whoever wants to be a part of it uh, can be a part of it. It isn't anybody who who uh, has a desire to be involved in leadership or authority within the church. Well, if he likes it, then let him serve. But there is more to it because it says, yes, you need to desire it. If anybody wants to serve in the ministry, uh, they need to have a desire to do so. It has to come from God. It can't come out of selfish ambition. It can't come out of vain conceit. But one desire that is approved by God and God's people. And what I mean by that is you can't have an individual saying, I want to serve, I want to serve, I, I think I'm a real good elder, I think I do a great job. The way that that is affirmed is first of all by God. How is that done? Through the qualifications that we're going to look at. But the second aspect is it is affirmed by God's people. And so when a man says, uh, has this deep desire to want to serve, It is my personal opinion that he'll never have to say, what about me? What about me? But that God will affirm it through his people and that people will say, hey, what about him? He is a strong man of the word. He is a man of integrity. Why don't we let him serve? And so it begins with this internal desire, but it doesn't just stop there. Notice what the text says. It says if he desires it, he desires a noble task. The second qualification that involves this call is this idea that we must be devoted, we must be devoted uh, to the job description for elders. And what that means is, is that it's not us just desiring just this ambivalent uh, kingship role or authority role within a local church, but there's a job description. Uh, the, the word there that is important is he desires a noble task. There's a job. There's a description that is going to be laid out. This is a task. It is a noble one. The Greek word there for task is ergon, which implies the expenditure of energy, effort, and zeal. It was usually used in the first century to speak of a lifelong commitment to a never-ending job. Think about that for a moment. It is someone who is called to a job they will never themselves complete. As I was writing that down in my notes, I got a little depressed. You mean, God, 
all the work that I do as a singular elder, all the Monday nights that we spend together as an elder team, all that work, every time we think we've accomplished something, at the end of the day, you're telling me it will never be done. And and God said, yeah, Tim, unless you can accomplish the great commission uh, with you and the elders, uh, yeah, the job will never be done until you stand in glory. And that's an amazing task. And our amazing thought to our task is that God has given us a job that we will never complete. It's never ending. I want you to understand that the role of the elder is not some assembly line job where at five o'clock or six o'clock, the assembly line ends and you walk away from it. It keeps going. It never ends. And if you've ever served as an elder, you will know that phone calls are going to come not just at 3 in the afternoon and 9 o'clock in the morning, but at 3 in the morning, calling and saying, come now, come and help us, come and pray with us. Uh, There's no time where an elder is off the clock because they're called to shepherd. And this idea of shepherding is of such great importance because one who shepherds the flock is one who is with the flock at all times. And so we see this task that is given. Now, there's another aspect to this task that I think is important. One who desires uh, this job, this role as elders, cannot just desire one part of the task. And what that means is you can't handpick what you're going to be an elder with. You can't say, well, elders lead, and and I'm a good leader, therefore I want to be an elder. Well, that's only one part of the eldering. There's another part of shepherding. And some may say, well, I like being with people, but, but I, I don't want to have to meet and, and deal with the, the business of eldering. And so I, I'll be an elder, but I only shepherd. There's always different roles that the elder is given. The best way to illustrate it is we as people, by nature, want to go to the things that we love. I had to get my son to preschool early this week. And Amanda says, Tim, you gotta get, gotta get Joshua to preschool early. I said, why? Is there a field trip? No. What's going on? He wants to feed the fish. And I said, what do you mean feed the fish? Well, every time we drop Joshua off, they have to sign their, uh, put their stuff in. We sign them in and they go to this board on the wall and they pick their name out and they put it into a task. And there's the flag holder. There's the ring, uh, the bell ringer. There is uh, the line leader, all these different lines. But the one that is most important is the fish feeder, okay? And I get there and we're like 10 minutes early and they're lined up already. And that first little girl put her name on the fish feeder. And I said, Joshua, it's already gone. He said, dad, I don't want to go to school then. And I said, son, can we find something else? And he says, no. He says, the only job I want to do is to be the feeding, the, the feed the fish. And I said, no, I, or Joshua, I said, I got to tell you, uh, that bell ringing one really seems to, to sound good. And he says, you think so? I said, yeah, all the cool kids want to ring the bell. That's what we call parental peer pressure, by the way. <laughs> and so he comes home and he's all excited he got to ring the bell. But isn't it like us even within the church? We look at the people that are serving around us and we say, well, I don't like my role. I want to serve in this role. I want to do this. Well, it, it isn't uh, uh, anything different when it comes to elders and leaders. We have to serve in the whole task that God's given, not just one part of the role. There are churches that bring in a lot of people that are very uh, well-known in the 
business realm. They say, well, if they serve great in the business world, then they'll serve great in the church world. And that doesn't always add up because you're looking at one aspect of the task. They may be great leaders, but the question is, are they shepherds? They may be great leaders and great shepherds, but do they know the word of God? And can they refute those who are teaching something contrary to that? We have to look at the whole task. To be able to do that, we have to look at the job description that's given. There is no job description that is given unless we look at the titles that an elder is given. The first title is the word elder. Elder literally means one who is mature. It is used for one uh, who is uh, more mature in age, but more importantly, the focus of this biblical word is one who is mature in biblical wisdom uh, and understanding. And so we need to find men who are biblically wise and mature. Now, we have a younger elder team, and that gets brought up uh, every once in a while, but I would re- I would go back to that we should never let anyone look down on us because of our age. Isn't that what Paul tells Timothy? Don't let anybody look down at you for your age. Now, what that means is that should not be the overriding decision. Should it be brought into the question? Yes, it should. We shouldn't just be bringing on all these young bucks and letting them serve and all that, but the question is, can we do what Timothy does? And that is set an example of godliness and, and, and one who is competent in the scriptures and one who loves the people and serves the people. And so what I would say as a 33-year-old elder, the youngest on the elder team, by the way, by five or six years, they're all a bunch of old guys on that team. But I would say, don't look at my age as a disqualifying thing. Look at the example and, and the commitment that I have made to you, to the church, and to God himself. Look at that, first of all, and then say, you know what? If there's areas of immaturity, maybe it's because of his youth. If there's areas of lacking self-control, it may be as a result of being too young. And so we have to understand that this is an area of maturity. The second word that is used for elder interchangeably is the word overseer. The word overseer. Uh, this is uh, seen in verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer. Well, what's an overseer? It's the same role as being an elder, but this speaks of the task of managing the church. The elders are given the job of overseeing the church, overseeing the ministry of the church, overseeing the finances of the church, overseeing the stewardship of the church, overseeing uh, all aspects of the church. Now, it doesn't mean the elders control the church. That needs to be made abundantly clear. The elders do not control the church. This is Christ's church, not the elders' church. And we are accountable to you, the congregation, and to God himself for how we lead this, but it speaks of this managing of the church. The final role that is spoken of is found in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is what it says in verse 11. It says, it was God who gave some to be apostles, prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors. The word there, Greek word is poimen, which literally means a shepherd, one who, who shepherds the sheep. And so we have this one who is mature, speaking of his... Uh, if you will, capacity as a wise and godly man. We have an overseer, one who manages and oversees the church, and then a shepherd. We can't pick and choose which we're going to be. Those three titles make our job description. So our elders are a group of godly men who have the job of managing the church, and the way that they manage and oversee the church is through the ministry of shepherding. 
by loving and caring and protecting the sheep, ministering to the sheep so that they will be well-fed, they'll be protected, they'll be cared for, and they'll be ministered to. And that's the job description that God gives. The final qualification to this call is that uh, we have to be uh, involved or a part of a diverse group of elders. We need to be a part of a diverse group of elders. What that means is all throughout the New Testament. In fact, if you'll turn for a moment in first, uh, not first, but Titus chapter one, verse nine, verse five, it is not nine, verse five. Titus chapter one, verse five says the following. The reason I left you in Crete, Paul says, was that you may straighten out what is left unfinished. You have to understand that Paul has planted churches. And he leaves Titus there to go on more of his missionary journey. He says, Titus, I need you to do some things. There's some unfinished business that I have for you. And what does he say? You are to appoint elders in every town. In every church, there are to be elders. It doesn't say appoint one elder. It says appoint many elders. The book of James, chapter 5, I'll just read this for you, says this. It says... uh, see here. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church. Again, plural, elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The book of Acts says, I believe it's about 14 times, it uses the term elder in the plural form. God never intended for his church to be led by a single man. This has become a distinctive of Village Bible Church. Six years ago, when I was brought into the position I was in, I was the first of all the pastors of the history of Village Bible Church not to be known as the senior pastor. The man that usually preached here in the 30-some years of history at VBC was the senior pastor that preached. But what we did six years ago is said we will no longer have a senior pastor. There's no uh, terminology in the Bible that speaks of senior pastors and associate pastors. There are only elders. And so what we said was we want to teach and have our church understand there is no distinction. And while I may be given the role of teaching, I am but one of your elders from the elder team. And that Keith and Mario and Scott and Al and John and all these that serve as as elders here are equal in authority and equal in their uh, leadership within the church. And so what that means is not one individual ever takes precedent over another. There's no one on our elder team that has veto power that can sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. The elder board works together through the decision-making process that we call consensus. Every major decision that is brought to the church has to be built through consensus. The elders have to agree to move forward. It is a group decision-making process. Now, there's some uh, pitfalls to that. Number one, it is slow. Decision-making is slow at Village Bible Church. But you know what? That's okay because God has met us every time that we've had a decision that is made. And he's always worked things out. Decision-making also uh, involves the process of long discussions. And some of you say, well, Tim, why why do you meet every week? And, and, And why do your meetings last as long as they do? It isn't because we're playing basketball in the gym. I can assure you of that. It is because we are discussing and each man is bringing their ideas to the table on any subject that is brought up. What does this do? It protects the church. 
The church is led by a group of diverse men who have different backgrounds, different educations, different uh, upbringings that allow them to uh, represent the church in ways that are biblical. And so it's important that this man understand it's not just a calling that he has, but he joins a team of elders who are called to serve. Well, then if we find this man that has this consuming calling, what is the second qualification? The second qualification is that an elder must have a consistent character. He must have a consistent character in all areas of life. Now go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. It's work. It's work that he's called to, and so there's qualifications. If you're a part of any job, there's always a qualification or a description of the job, and qualifications are required for you to accomplish that. The work of an elder is the same thing. And so the first thing that we see in verses 2 through 7, and then in in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, are the qualifications. Now, to go through all these things, it would be impossible to do even in a whole series of sermons. In fact, to even talk on the subject of eldering and leadership within the church would take probably weeks to get through, and I'm trying to do it in one week. And so I want to look at each of these and break them down into four categories. The qualifications of an elder fall into four categories. The first one is is that a man who wants to serve as an elder must be morally above reproach. The idea here is that they need to be above reproach morally. Now look at the text again. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now an overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? Titus tells us in Titus chapter 1 verse 7. It says that since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. This idea of blameless or above reproach means morally in his life, he is free from uh, the idea of any accusation. He lives in such a way that no one could stick something to him that is untrue of his character. Literally, one commentator put it this way. A newer commentator said this, the man is not Velcro, he's Teflon. The idea here is nothing sticks to him. He lives in such a way that if someone said, hey, I saw Tim over at uh, uh, the bar the other day and he was as drunk as can be, I would hope that you would say, you know what? That just goes against everything that I know of Tim. He doesn't do that. And so you know what? That's why it's important that two or three uh, witnesses be brought to accuse an elder. Because it can't just be us throwing accusations against an elder, but two or three must swear by it, First Timothy chapter 5 says. Because it, if it's going to stick, there have to be witnesses that articulate it. So this man must be blameless. There must be nothing in his character. Now I love what Paul says. He says that an overseer must be above reproach. Underline, if you underline in your Bible, that word must. We miss these words. He isn't saying, well, they should be above reproach, or hopefully they're above reproach. He gives a definite phrase there and says, they must be. It is, it is something you can't get away from. An elder must be blameless. Now you sit there and say, well, Tim, we're all sinners, and you've just said that you're not perfect. So how can you and the elders be blameless? Well, we need to understand that when Paul talks about the qualifications, this is of great importance, that the qualifications of an elder are talking in the present day. They're in the present tense, the present time. 
is, uh, are the elders blameless? Now, if you've been around this church when I was growing up, you know I was far from blameless, okay? You know that, that Tim, in fact, some of the qualifications I, I broke. At times I was a, a, a lover of money. At times I was um, undisciplined. At times I was not temperate. At times I was not self-controlled. And so it's not looking at the whole man's life and saying, let's start back at chapter 1, the early years, the Tim life, and then keep going through all the years and seeing if he's been blameless that whole time. None of us could be. But what Paul is saying is in the present. Are they? Now, the question is, how long is the present? How long are we to look at an elder in his present life to see if he's above reproach? Long enough to know that there's a track record. Long enough to look and say, you know what? This man has gone through difficulty. This man has gone through good times. This man has, has had sadness. And, and all throughout it, he has proven faithful. This man has had struggles in his life, and yet he has proven himself to be faithful. One of the greatest books that I've read on eldering is a book by uh, a man from Texas named Lynn Anderson. And Lynn Anderson wrote this book that was called They Smell Like Sheep. Okay? What a great title. They smell like sheep. And he wasn't talking about you, the congregation, but he was talking about elders that we smell like sheep because we're shepherds. If you're hanging out, and I was uh, uh, just cooking just uh, last Thursday, and I came uh, to meet with uh, one of the guys here, and I had just gotten done cooking. He says, man, you smell like charcoal. You smell, uh, man, I could smell as soon as you walked in. Well, that's because I've been around the smoke. I had been working around the grills. And so the aroma was there. If you don't have shepherds who smell like sheep, then something's wrong. If they don't have the stench of, of the sheep and the wool and, and the outdoors of where they're with the sheep, then something's wrong. And he says they have to smell like sheep. And when he talks about the biblical qualifications of those types of shepherds, he gives two qualifications. Number one, they have to have walked a long time with God. The idea here is that they know their God. They know their Savior. They know the word that their Lord has given. But the thing I love even more than that is is the requirement that they must have been around the devil for a time as well. They sit there and say, why would an elder be around the devil? Because an elder, if he's going to last as an elder, has to know the devil's schemes. He has to understand what the devil is going to throw his way. He needs to understand when he needs to run like Joseph did in Potiphar's house. And he needs to know what to say when trouble comes. And that is so important. And so when we look for a man who is above reproach, we don't look at his whole entire life and every failure and every problem, but we look at a long enough time where he has shown himself to be faithful, shown himself to be a lover of God and a hater of sin. And so when we look at this blameless moral character, it begins there. Now, the next thing we see is not just morally, but domestically. Domestically, notice what it says. I'm going to have us turn to uh, Titus chapter 1. It gives a better rundown of these in, in order. It says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an elder is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. And so, there's a bookend. An elder must be blameless and an elder must be blameless. And where does it begin? In the home, it starts with his marital relationship and it then goes to his relationship with his children. 
Now, the first thing we need to understand is, is that we must be, it says, a husband of one wife. I got to tell you that translation is a poor translation because that's not what the Greek is trying to accomplish. That is putting more focus on the marital status of an elder. Because what that means is if a man is to be a husband of one wife, a man who is single cannot serve. That's not what Paul is talking about. But what he's saying literally in the Greek is he is to be a one woman man. The idea here is that he is faithfully committed to the wife if he has one. And he's not involved with other women. He's not running around and having a wandering eye. He doesn't at this time, it wasn't all that important here, but at the time when the book of First Timothy and Titus was written, polygamy was a huge thing. And so the idea here was is that he wasn't a polygamist. He wasn't having multiple wives, but he was devoted. He was a one-woman man. And so then the question comes up about issues of can a divorced man serve? Can a man who is a widow serve? We would say that based on this qualification alone, this text here, that it does not give any prohibition to any of those things because it's not talking about a marital status. Does that mean that it would be more difficult for a divorced man to serve as an elder here? Yes, it would. Because divorce brings a lot of baggage into the life of a man that doesn't stop like some of the sins that I committed when I was younger, that they stopped. And I was able to prove that because a divorce is an ongoing thing. It's something that has finality at the moment of the divorce that keeps going. And so the elders have spent a lot of time and we're working on what we would consider a position paper on this subject because this is important. Important. What does the Bible say with the issue of divorce and leadership? And we're continuing to work on it, but we cannot pull it from this text. And so I'm not going to address that in great detail this morning. But the idea here is he has to be an example. His relationship, his love for his wife must be one that is godly. Now understand this, God used a man named Hosea whose wife was running amok and God used him to be an example of faithfulness and perseverance. Now some will say, well, he was a prophet, he wasn't an elder. God used him to lead for whatever reason he did. And so we have to be careful. That doesn't mean a man's marriage will be perfect. It won't always be rosy. Just talk to Amanda. I mess up all the time. But it should be an example for the most part. You should be able to look at at your elders and say they love their wives. They're serving their wives. They're ministering to their wives. They're trying to be an example to other men on how they're to love and care for their wives. The next thing is their children. Titus is told, he says that uh, the man is to have children who believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The idea here, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, let me just turn back there for a moment, says this, he must manage his own family well and see to it that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The idea here is if a man wants to serve as an elder, his family needs to be in order. The idea here is there needs to be proper respect and honor. Now there's a lot of thoughts by scholars that say, what does it mean that a child, the children need to obey? What does it mean that the children should believe? Is that children like my children who are seven and under, it's not hard for them to obey. It's very difficult for my three boys right now to be wild and riotous as the scripture says. So, so what does it mean? Well, for those that have older kids, does it mean until they're 18 and they move out of the house? Again, there are many different understandings of what this means, but I would say this, 
Can we look at the family that an elder has and say that he has a wife that is loved and and submits to his authority? Do we see children who for the most part find themselves living in accordance with what their father has said? Because if a man's family is out of order, then, then the man should not serve because it says if you can't get your family managed right, then how can you manage the family of God? And so it's very important that the family be uh, a family that, again, is an example. But what does that mean? That doesn't mean the second that the one of the pastor's kids, and I say this ahead of time just so you're aware, that one of the pastor's boys uh, gets in trouble, gets picked up by the police one day in 10 years, that an elder is unqualified or disqualified. What it means is how is he working through that issue? How is he dealing with it? Now, if the child continues to be riotous and rebellious, uh, then the question is, uh, should he be more involved in the ongoing personal development of his child or should he be involved in the church? Many would say he needs to go and deal with his child, the church. My mom used to say, as a son of an elder, we would mess up at school and my mom would come in with all fire and fervor and she'd say, your father's disqualified as an elder now. I'd say, mom, I was tardy for class. I know he's going to have to step down. How do you feel about that? And I said, well, it means dad's going to be open one more night of the week for, for us instead of meetings. And she said, see, now you're being riotous. See, now they all got it. And so we need to understand that kids are going to be kids. And the question is, are the dads serving their families well? There's no rhyme or reason. There's no perfect way of looking at this, but looking at his whole family and seeing how does the family look domestically. It needs to be that. They bring up some other ones in Titus. They need to be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. The idea here is domestically, uh, they are people that you would like to be around. If you're around an elder and say, you know what, I really don't like them. They're not very nice. I never know if they're going to go off the handle on me. I don't know if they are uh, going to uh, be self-controlled or just anything is going to come out. If you think that of any of our elders, then there's a problem. We need to deal with that. Elders need to be people that you want to be around. The next one is socially. Paul gives five negatives that an elder cannot be. He says he must refrain from being a drunkard. He can't be violent. He can't be quarrelsome. He can't be a lover of money. He can't be overbearing. Why would these things be so important uh, for an elder to be? Because this is what uh, Paul tells Timothy, that an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. Each one of these things would paint a bad picture for outsiders about who an elder is. If you hear about one of your elders uh, getting drunk outside a local tavern and and just all over the place, not controlled in the least bit, it's going to paint a bad reflection or a bad picture uh, to the church. One of the questions that my employees are asked all the time of anybody who, who knows me, and one thing they say all the time is, Tim, why does everybody ask what it's like to work for you? And I said, I don't know. I said, probably because they'd like to understand, am I the same person at church as I am at work? And so what they're wanting to hear, not that they're wanting to dig dirt up on me, but my job as an elder, I will tell them, is to have a good reputation with you. And I know that I'm not your favorite person all the time, but am I a man of character? Am I a man of integrity? Do I say what I, uh, do I do what I say, uh, when I say something, when I promise something? And they want to know and understand, do I do those things? And I would hope that anytime you interact with anybody, 
that they would be able to say of Tim, yes, I may not agree with everything that Tim does, or maybe I'm on this side of the issue or that side of the issue, but as, as an outsider, one who's not in the church, he is the same way in the church as he is outside of the church. Hopefully they would say, they would never say, let me rephrase this, of any of our elders. You're at Yorkville High School and you say, yeah, uh, I know one of your teachers, Al Gonerman. He serves as one of our elders at the church, a leader at the church. I would hope nobody would say, Al Gonerman goes to church? Would never know it. I mean, that just doesn't add up. Wow, missed that. Okay, we'll keep going. Scratch that for the second service, okay? People in the church need to know who their men are outside of the church. Who cares how great they look on Sunday morning? The question is, on the mid-Tuesday afternoon meeting, when everything is falling apart, are they just destroying their credibility and their testimony in the workplace and then coming to church and saying, I love Jesus. Let's open God's Word. Let's pray. Are they the same person in the social times of their life as well as in the times that they're in the church? The final one is spiritually. The final one is spiritually. Paul tells Titus and Timothy that an elder must be spiritual. He says an elder must not be a recent convert. The idea here is that an elder must be a seasoned Christian. One who has been around God, as I've said. One who's been around the devil. Titus says that he needs to be opening his home. He needs to be loving what is good. He needs to be self-controlled, upright, and holy. To do these things, a man must be a student of God's word. You can't be upright. You can't be holy. You can't be one who is a lover of God and his people if you're not a student of God's word. We don't come up with that stuff on our own. There's nothing in us that produces that kind of work. And so to be a lover of people, even when people hate you, comes from the word of God. To be upright and holy, set apart for the work of God, comes from God's word, not from even our own personal drive or dedication to do it. It starts with us being spiritual people. And so the question is, Tim, you've said that the perfect need uh, only need to apply. Is that the case? Well, no. We want people that are morally and domestically and socially and spiritually qualified. But I'll tell you something. The ministry of Village Bible Church is to make every man in the church and woman for that matter, but especially the men, to be elder qualified. Not that every man in this church, every man in the pew is, is going to serve as an elder, but why wouldn't we want all our men to be above reproach? Why wouldn't we want all our men to be one-woman men? Why wouldn't we want them to be good fathers whose families are in order? Why wouldn't we want them not to be falling to drunkenness and to be hospitable and loving and caring, serving, not lovers of money, but serving God because they love God. Why wouldn't every man want to be that? And so when Tom tells you to come to a men's breakfast, this isn't so we can have flapjacks and sausage, but that we can instill in the hearts of men the idea of being elders, elders in their families, elders in their workplaces, elders within their uh, a, a ongoing neighborhoods and, and people that, that flow out of relationships with them, that they would serve as elders and that there would be a, a group of men who would serve as elders within the church. And so if you're a man here, our desire isn't that you just sit on the sidelines and watch other men serve as elders, but that you yourself would be qualified as an elder and would serve as an elder in any way that God would call you to. The next thing we see is that an elder must have strong biblical convictions and the capability to teach others. 
The idea here, and this is a reason why you need to be spiritual, why you need to know the Word of God, is we need to be established in our doctrine. The first thing we need to understand is an elder must be established in his doctrine. Titus chapter 1, verse, uh, I believe it's verse 9, says the following. He must hold, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So the first thing that an elder must do is he must be established in his doctrine. The idea here is that he must believe and be compelled to know and to understand the full knowledge of God. An elder's job is to feed the sheep. The only food that we have is the word of God. We have nothing else, okay? We have the word of God. And so if I don't know the word of God, how can I feed you? If Keith doesn't know the word of God, how can he counsel you? If any of our elders don't know the word of God, they have nothing to give. That's why it says that an elder must be apt to teach. He must be able to teach because that's the only way we feed the congregation. That's the only way that you can be healthy, well-fed, and protected. And so a man, first of all, must have a knowledge that he is solid in his faith. Does that mean that all men must be theologians if they want to serve as elders? Absolutely not. And and on the elder board, we have varying levels of biblical and theological knowledge. And that's good. And that's, that's okay. But it does mean that we do all need to have enough of a knowledge that we would be able to be established. The second thing is, is that we need to be able to educate others. The text goes on and it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. That's him. Why? So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The two reasons why a man must know the word of God as an elder is first of all to encourage others. <clears throat> as an elders, as elders, we go to people who are struggling. We go to people that are suffering. One of my most difficult uh, times as, as an elder uh, was uh, ministering to Howard and Amanda Hyman when they lost their two uh, newborn twins. I got a call at, I think it was like three in the morning and Howard calls and in tears and he says, you got to come. He says, it doesn't look good. And I get to Del Nor Hospital and Keith arrives with me and they're brokenhearted. They're holding their lifeless babies in their hands and they're looking for encouragement. They're looking for something. They had tried to have babies for, for so long and here God gives two little beautiful babies to them. And, and at the point of birth, they die. What are we to say? Well, an elder needs to know what the word of God says so that he can encourage people in those times. That we don't sit there and say, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. This is bad karma. You guys must have done something in your former life that caused this. No, we need to say that the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That we can know and trust that God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We need to use scriptures like that, that when we see people hurting, we can encourage them. We can love them. When people want to give up, there's, there's a gentleman in our church that constantly is struggling with, how can I be saved if I do these things in my life? And, and I find myself going to him and saying, brother, this is what God's word says, that it isn't the righteous things that we do, but according to God's mercy that he saved us. And if God saves us by his mercy, then while God doesn't want to see us sin, while there's great consequence when we sin, that there is no sin that can separate us from the love of Christ. There's nothing we can do that can separate us. We didn't win God's love, then how can we lose God's love? An elder must encourage those with proper doctrine. 
They need to do it. It starts out, it can be theological. Right now, on Sunday nights, I'm leading a couple dozen people through uh, theology, understanding who God is and our response. And that's important, but it also is scriptural. We need to go to the Word of God and we need to deal with that. But it's devotional and practical as well. Sometimes it's us just putting our arms around people and loving them and ministering with them and crying with them. We need to shepherd, and we need to do that by teaching the Word of God. Next, it involves refuting others. Notice what the text says. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The job of the elders, if someone begins to espouse a doctrine that is not true, we are to refute it. We are to tell people where things are wrong. We need to make sure now because of the medium of TV and radio that we articulate where people are going wrong when it comes to some of the Bible teachers that are out there. That doesn't mean I think you need to go and attack them by name, but what you do need to do is articulate, hey, you may see this on TV. You may be a part of this. One of the things that I've heard so much from what I would consider mature Christians is, hey, Oprah sounds really good right now. What she's articulating is solid stuff. Have you heard about this guy Eckhart Tolle. And what I've heard about this guy is garbage. Now you say, well, Tim, you just named him. Well, sometimes it's hard not to name an individual. Be careful of that stuff. That stuff is from the pit and it smells like smoke. Hopefully you got that. It is no good for the people of God to be a part of it. We need to refute that. We need to be a part of dealing with our own sheep who go wayward and say, I don't want to do what God's word says and lovingly care for them and minister to them, but also tell them the way you are going is wrong. It involves knowing and understanding the word of God. Finally, we need to be compassionately connected to those under our care. We need to be passionately connected to those under our care. I want you to get a pen and I want you to write some things down. The elders have a task uh, to be done. The task is involving our relationship with you. It starts with the elders. Let's start with that. What do the elders commit to you? We commit the following. Number one, to teach you biblical truth. We will proclaim the Great Commission to teach you all that Christ has commanded. We will preach it in season and out of season. We will not strive to tickle itching ears, but we will give you the meat of God's Word. That's what we long for. That's what we desire. Will we hit it every second of every day? Probably not, but that's what we strive for. Number two, we want to model Christ-like behavior. The idea here is that the elders want to live holy and noble lives before you. The book of 1 Thessalonians says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Write this passage down. It says, you are witnesses as, as so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as fathers deal with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That's what the elders want to do. We want you to be able to imitate our example because we model Christ. Number three, we want to maintain doctrinal purity. No matter when popular, where a popular opinion is, we want to hold to the truth of God's word. We want to teach you doctrine. We want to silence false teachers. We want to stay away from worthless genealogies and old wives tales and proclaim to you the people of God the whole counsel of God's word. That's what we want to do. We want to discipline unruly members. 
We want to speak the truth in love and we want to do all that we can to keep the purity of the church by exhorting and admonishing those who wander away from the principles of Scripture. We want all of our people to seek repentance and to seek reconciliation no matter what they find themselves struggling with. Next, we want to oversee the church with integrity. We want to protect the name, the assets of this church by being upfront and open with the public business of this church. We want to make all decisions with prayerful and godlike wisdom. We want to do this so that the church's name will be known in the community as one of ethics and integrity. And finally, we want to pray for the church. According to James chapter 5, we are called to pray for those who are sick and hurting. We will seek the Lord for the flock that God may be formed in you and that you will know the height and the depth and the great width of the love of Christ. That is what we pray for. Now, what do we do for us as a congregation? Hopefully you got all that stuff very quickly. For the elders, teach biblical truth, model Christ-like behavior, maintain doctrinal purity, discipline unruly members, and oversee the church with integrity, and pray for the flock. So what do we ask of you? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, and then I'm going to close. Hebrews chapter 13. This is what you're asked to do. This is the relationship. This is for the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, says, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, not verse 5, verse 7 says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. The first thing as a congregation you should do is remember your leaders. What does that mean? Be mindful of them. Remember them. Don't don't just use them for what you're wanting to accomplish. Remember, they are husbands. They are fathers. Remember, they have other aspects of their life. That doesn't mean uh, that we are unapproachable. We're always approachable. But remember that when you approach us, when you come to us, that you recognize that there are other things going on in their lives, that the world doesn't revolve around just the issue that you're dealing with. Because as shepherds, we're going to deal with you and we're going to spend a lot of time with you. But you need to also say, you know what? Maybe we can talk about this later. We need to remember them. We also need to imitate them. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Are we living in such a way that you can imitate our faith? That's what you're called to. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. That's the next one. Can you obey and submit to your leaders? You're called to do so. It says at the end of that verse, it says to make their work a joy not a burden. As a congregation, I can tell you for the years that I've served as an elder, the joy has been all mine and has been all the elders in serving. That doesn't mean there haven't been problems. That doesn't mean that there aren't hardships that come. But I will tell you on behalf of the elders, it is a joy to serve as an elder at Village Bible Church. And I'm not saying that just for positive platitudes, but I really believe the elders, both the elders and I believe that with all our hearts. It is a joy to serve you. Continue to make our work a joy, not a burden. Pray for our leaders. Look at verse 18. It's pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably with you in every way. And the final one is from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Support them in all ways possible. You are called as a congregation to support elders of a double honor that are paid. That would be our staff. You need to support them financially. We need to support our elders emotionally, uh, sending letters and cards, ministering to them spiritually. It is not just the job of the elders to be the teachers, but sometimes it would be good for others to be able to teach and to teach God's word that the elders of your church can be listening and 
hearing what God's Word says, and physically as well. One of the greatest stories that this church has had was, I've told this story before, but my parents had this dilapidated old porch. And one day, and and I'm going to point them out because the two guys that were key figures in this were a part of it, Rich Wood and Dave Heidel, came and served my dad as an elder and came and rebuilt our whole porch. And I never will forget that. And one of the joys that I knew that my dad struggled with as as dealing with eldering, but what a joy it was for him to see men come and say, you know what, you've served us well, and we want to serve you well. The congregation has a role. Pray for your elders. Minister to your elders. Love them. We need every ounce of encouragement that you can give. And in doing so, then we will be able to serve you well in the days and weeks to come. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word we thank you for what it's taught us father i pray that as we leave this place these words will not fall void on our ears but that they will penetrate the very heart of who we are father i pray for this church that it will love its leaders serve its leaders minister to them but above all lord obey and be subject to them father that we would not lord it over them but we would serve them well. Lord, I pray for our elders that you would minister to us in a way that we can then go and minister, being good shepherds of the flock. Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that we will be a church changed by your word as we fellowship with one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.